Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Jay Lalitzari, MD, the director of Quest Clinical Research, whose mission is the development of treatments for life-altering viral infections, including HIV, AIDS, hepatitis B and C, herpes simplex, and COVID-19. Since 1989, Dr. Lalitzari has served as a principal investigator for phase one, two, and three clinical studies of new therapies for viral diseases, including HIV, AIDS, CMV, HPV, HSV, hepatitis, B and C, influenza, and RSV. In 1997, he became CEO and director of Quest Clinical Research. Quest's services are free and available to all. I welcome Jay Lalitzari to Savage Minds. Let's kick off with your piece from last week in Counterpunch called Hope for Critically Ill COVID-19 Patients Within Reach, wherein you write, there is new hope for severely ill patients with COVID-19 On March 30th, U.S. company Cytodyne released the results from a randomized double-blind study of a drug called Leranlimab. The study reveals an unprecedented 82% reduction in the rate of death at day 14 for patients on a ventilator who received two weekly doses of Leranlimab compared to a placebo. So in this paper, you note that Cytodyne must perform yet another trial that may take months to complete. And the FDA having the power to approve access to Leranlimab for critically ill patients immediately under the Emergency Use Authorization, or the EUA, is not doing so. It's also important to understand the history, I think, of the FDA's authorization of the EUA, which began in the months following 9-11 and the subsequent anthrax mail attacks in the U.S. when Congress enacted the Project BioShield Act of 2004, which called for billions of dollars in appropriations for purchasing vaccines in preparation for a bioterror attack and for the stockpiling and emergency countermeasures. So to be able to act rapidly in an emergency, Congress actually allowed the FDA to authorize formally unapproved products for emergency use against a threat to public health and safety, subject to a declaration emergency by the HHS. So the record indicates that Congress was focused on the threat of bioterror specifically after 9-11, not on preparing for naturally occurring pandemics. Yet the FDA's newfound EUA authority was very rarely used in its first 16 years, mostly N1H1 swine flu in that pandemic of 2009 by authorizing medical equipment and existing influenza drugs, Health policy experts would look back on the use of EUA against H1N1 as an overall success. And then it was also used again to authorize occasional countermeasures in anticipation of MERS, Ebola, Zika, and other epidemics, none of which ultimately materialized in the U.S. And more recently, the EUA has been used for the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine for the prevention of coronavirus in December, I believe, caused by severe acute respiratory syndrome. To include this, this EUA, we included the use of this drug for adolescents 12 through 15 years of age. The FDA then amended the original EUA issued on December 11th for administration to individuals over the age of 16. So here we are with you and your colleagues pushing the emergency use authorization for this drug. Can you tell our listeners about what makes this drug so important for those suffering under the effects of coronavirus? 
surely it's a complicated story sorry a little hard to know where to start thank you for that introduction that was almost more than i know about the history of the eua there are three things that i guess i just broadly would lead that your listeners should know uh number one uh lorolimab and i'll get into the mechanism later is a is a drug that just completed a phase three study and in that phase three study we saw in the subgroup of critically ill patients, that is patients who were intubated in an ICU due to COVID-19. In those 62 patients, um, there was a, a 82% reduction in death at day 14 after uh, patients were given two weekly doses of lorolimab compared to placebo. So that's number one. Uh, the, the, uh, and no other drug for COVID uh, has moved the needle in critically ill patients with COVID-19. And lots of drugs have been approved under that EUA mechanism you discussed. But all those drugs generally are targeting the virus itself. They work early in the course of illness. None of them have made a difference in critically ill patients. So number one is uh, in a uh, phase three study in a subgroup of critically ill patients, we see a striking 82% reduction in death. Uh, after the two doses were administered at day 14. Number two, this drug has a long history. It was originally developed as an HIV drug. Uh, it's also being looked at in cancer patients. And all told, over 1,200 patients have now been treated with the drug without any sort of uh, safety signal. Uh, the, uh, some patients with HIV, actually in my clinic, have now been receiving the drug up to seven years. Uh, by weekly subcutaneous injection. And this is as clean a drug as we've ever seen. And that's sort of consistent with the class of drugs of monoclonal antibodies. They tend to be very uh, uh, well tolerated without significant side effects. So number one is the 82% reduction in death. Number two is a very clean safety profile. And the third point that we would all agree on is that because this is a subgroup within a phase three study, the, the results can only be hypothesis generating. They're not hypothesis confirming. So that is on Cytodyne now to repeat a phase three study, a larger study just in critically ill patients who are intubated and, and to show again that that result was not a fluke uh, in, in a larger study with, with the outcome of mortality in critically ill patients designated as the primary endpoint. We would all agree on those three things. The question is, what is the FDA going to do in the interim? Um, Cytodyne is a tiny company. They have 22 employees. They've been operating on fumes for a long time. And it will take uh, six to eight months before we can uh, see them implement and roll uh, and, and analyze a phase three study in critically ill patients. This is not a giant pharmaceutical company. Uh, and it's just going to take time. That's the way it is. So in the interim, as you say, the FDA has used the EUA uh, to approve uh, various vaccines. That's obviously made a huge difference. The, the drugs that they've issued the EUA for have had a mixed track record. Uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine probably was a mistake. Uh, the, the, the outcomes with uh, convalescent plasma have not been great. Remdesivir, the other monoclonals that are antivirals, they work early in the illness. So they probably all work as either prevention or prophylaxis, or they work if you take them 
in the days following initial infection. But once people get sick, those drugs do not work. Uh, and so we do not have a treatment currently uh, that's been approved for emergency access uh, that works in critically ill patients that's been evaluated in a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized study. It is true, I should note, that steroids, uh, dexamethasone, uh, is a potent steroid, and it does appear to help people who are critically ill, but it has not been evaluated uh, under the same sort of rigorous uh, trial design. So in, in my view, this is not complicated. The, the, it's the only signal of a drug helping patients who are critically ill. We know that there is no downside to the drug, and it's going to be months before we get follow-up data. In the interim, the FDA should issue the EUA, and the, and the consequences of not issuing that EUA, you know, whatever they are in the United States, and obviously things are quieting down in the U.S., but all the regulatory agencies abroad in Europe, um, in, in Asia, in South America, they follow the FDA lead. So by the FDA holding up the EUA for lorolumab, they are also having serious consequences for, uh, for uh, the international community. And have any hospitals around the planet been using lorolumab? Yes, indeed. The, the Philippines has sort of courageously gone forward um, and ignored uh, the FDA's stalling. They are now uh, distributing the drug and I believe 100 hospitals throughout the Philippines um, uh, on road and route to an EUA. Uh, the, the Brazilian government is getting involved and the Albert Einstein Institute in Brazil is now uh, setting up uh, the phase three studies that uh, at least one study that Cytodyne needs in their own critically ill patients. And I believe it was announced yesterday that conversations are, are starting with India as well. And what are the details? You said this is a complicated story. What are some of the complexities that are in fact keeping Laurent Lemap off of the list for EUA? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that you slice that a number of different ways. Uh, you know, the drugs that have been approved for EUA obviously come from big pharma. Big pharma, which pays, you know, big money and has, you know, significant lobbying efforts uh, with the FDA. In, in contrast, you know, Cytodyne is a tiny company with no real influence uh, in Washington. In, in terms of the data, uh, this drug has kind of a, a long history as a, a HIV drug in development. And I think that uh, during the course of that development program, uh, there were some bumps in the road uh, between Cytodyne and FDA, uh, which uh, linger today. But the, the, the key bit would be in terms of the data, first of all, the FDA doesn't believe in this drug. They, it is important to note that the way lorolumab works, and it's interesting, we should probably get into it, is a completely new mechanism of action for a treatment for a virus or anything else. We are basically blocking the GPS system of the, uh, of the immune system that brings inflammatory cells into the lungs that creates the pneumonia. Everyone knows that COVID-19, people get short of breath, they get pneumonia, they get intubated, and, and sometimes they die. Well, how do the inflammatory cells know to go to the lungs and create that immunologic chaos? Um, it, you know, Again, with COVID-19, 
it's the virus that's early in the infection that drives the initial symptoms. But once people are sick, it's not the virus, which is why the antivirals don't particularly work. It's immune chaos that is killing people. So how do the cells know to get to the lungs to create that chaos? And they're signaling in the body. And one of the key GPS signals is called CCR5. And, and that is and that helps the, uh, so when a, when a cell in the lung gets infected with the COVID virus, it sends out a signal that binds to CCR5 on other inflammatory cells in the blood. And that drives the inflammatory cells into the lungs, creating the inflammation, which becomes overly exuberant and chaotic that results in pneumonia. Well, this is a completely new mechanism for the FDA. They've, there's, no, there's no treatment quite like it. So, you know, if it's true that Cytodyne is a small company that doesn't have the clout as other big pharma, it's also true that they're uh, developing a drug for which there's no precedent and difficult for the FDA, I think, to get their mind around. Um, and then statistically, there are some issues in that the overall, you know, honestly, we knew the drug was working last spring. Uh, and we knew it based on, uh, you know, and the plural of anecdotes is not data. But we saw some striking anecdotes, including patients who were on life support, who'd failed all other therapies, who then got lorolimab and quickly turned around. So we saw a strong signal that the drug was working, but we saw that signal in patients who were critically ill, innovated. And uh, I was part of the company as their interim chief medical officer for a while and helped design the studies. And we made one assumption that turned out to be uh, uh, erroneous. And that is because we saw evidence that it was working in critically ill patients, innovated patients, we assumed that it would also work in patients slightly earlier in the course of illness, specifically patients who were in the hospital on oxygen, but not yet innovated. So the phase three study enrolled 394 patients, which included both the innovated patients in the ICU, as well as hospitalized patients on oxygen. Well, it turns out when we did the analysis of that study, it missed its primary endpoint. And, and that's where complications come in. First of all, we had proposed that the, the study treat patients with weekly doses for four weeks. Unfortunately, the FDA restricted the study design and we were only able to give two weekly doses. So patients were only covered with drug for day 14. But the FDA insisted that the primary endpoint of the study remain at day 28, even though patients were only treated through day 14. So that's one problem. The other problem is that there was an unfortunate imbalance uh, in the enrollment of the study, such that most of the people who were over 65 and even more the patients over 75 who were much greater risk of dying from the infection, they were much more likely to be randomized to drug as opposed to placebo. So those things combined, uh, as well as the size of the study, uh, the primary endpoint was not met in the phase three study. Uh, perhaps a larger study, uh, certainly a study that would have given patients the full four weeks of doses, probably given the patients the first dose by intravenous injection instead of subcutaneously. Uh, and then certainly a study where the, the age distribution was balanced between the, the drug and placebo would have all made a difference. And that's why Cytodyne has to repeat the study. There, uh, there's no argument around that. They have to repeat the study, stratify for age, give four weekly doses, first dose IV, 
uh, and just critically ill patients. Um, and when we get that result, I believe with all my heart and soul that we'll see the first drug uh, that, uh, that effectively treats that offers critically ill patients a fighting chance. It's really a question of what are we gonna do in the meantime? And the meantime is again, six to eight months. And in the meantime, there are other drugs being used that are not nearly as effective. Could you speak to those, even antiretrovirals? Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to make the case for lorolimab based on, the, on its own mechanism, its own data and results and what we've seen. And, and I think that in, in the aggregate certainly warrants an emergency use authorization. The, the EUA is there for the FDA to act in a crisis when the evidence suggests a, a therapy will provide more benefit than harm. So with lorolimab, we have this striking 82% uh, reduction in death. It, it clearly needs to be confirmed, but we also have this totally benign safety profile. So taken together, it would seem to meet the EUA criteria and, and that uh, should be issued immediately. But when you compare lorolimab to all the other drugs the FDA has approved, you can also make the case that their approval for these other drugs, the bar was set so low that there's, there's really, again, no issue why they wouldn't approve lorolimab. Remember that the original EUA issued for remdesivir was based on a reduction in, in, in time to hospital discharge. Uh, and that, that primary endpoint was changed uh, just a couple of weeks before the data was analyzed uh, and released. So, you know, we don't know the full story there, but uh, we do know that uh, remdesivir was evaluated in, the, in a st large study in China and then in, in a study by the World Health Organization in Europe that was 10 times bigger than Gilead's study, and they found no evidence of benefit. So certainly in the case of remdesivir, the EUA and, and subsequent approval was based on a pretty flimsy uh, evidence of benefit. With hydroxychloroquine, that was the EUA was issued based on a, a case series out of France. And the subsequent studies have shown that it does cause more harm than benefit. The monoclonal antibodies, uh, again, they show some benefit, but some of them are having to be withdrawn because the, with the evolution of the mutant strains, those uh, monoclonals no longer treat the virus. So the FDA has approved EUAs for drugs and, and none of these therapies have shown any benefit to patients once they're in the ICU intubated. Laronlimab is a humanized monoclonal antibody. What is the difference between a humanized monoclonal antibody that targets against the CCR5 and the ones of which you are speaking right now? Yeah, great question. So all of the therapies, including the monoclonals, uh, or even the convalescent plasma, which basically tries to get the antibodies out of people who were previously infected. Um, they're all ways of trying to target the virus. And as I said, they, they could all probably work as either prevention or in the very, very early days following infection. Um, let me just, as an aside, years ago, I worked on the development of drugs for uh, influenza. And what we saw in that development program was that we have antivirals like Tamiflu and before that, Rolenza, and that if you take somebody with influenza and give them a placebo and do nasal swabbing to, to look for virus, they generally shed virus for four or five days. 
if you then give them Relenza or Tamiflu, you can reduce an antiviral like these other COVID therapies. You can reduce viral shedding down to two days, but you really don't impact the course of the clinical illness very much. And that's because with flu, as with COVID, the virus starts the process, but once the immune dysregulation um, occurs, that, that's, that, that correlates to the onset of symptoms. And then when the immune uh, response becomes hyperinflammatory and chaotic, that's when people are in the ICU really sick. So the antivirals, they, they kill the virus, but they don't really change the course of the illness and flu. And we've seen the same thing in COVID-19. So all those drugs are antivirals. Lorolimab is also a humanized monoclonal, but it does not attack the virus. It blocks that CCR5 receptor, which is the, the, the way in which the, the immune system controls the trafficking of inflammatory cells. It says to the, the cells that drive inflammation, you know, this is where, you know, come to the lungs. This is where you want to be. And, and, and then when the and cells get there because the, the, the signal binds to CCR5, they then also secrete uh, the what's called chemokines and cytokines that create a vicious circle of inflammation in the lungs. So lorolimab is fundamentally different. It's blocking the signals that drive inflammation, both in the lungs and elsewhere in the body, uh, as opposed to the other antibodies and the other drugs, which are all just targeting the virus. And there are, if I'm not mistaken, some dangers in using antivirals. I spoke to a scientist about eight months ago who was telling me that with antiviral treatments, there is a risk that this can push the subject to become resistant to the antivirals. Yeah, we, we're seeing resistant virus, but we're not really seeing virus that's evolved to be resistant to the um, antiviral drugs. And, and that's probably because the antiviral drugs are just not exerting that much pressure. Um, although that's not true, the, certainly the, the the, the virus has evolved mutant strains that are now resistant to some of the monoclonals. The main thing the virus is evolving in response to is the immune system, um, which, which, is a, which is, exerts a pressure on the virus in, the, in, a, in an analogous way to what the antiviral drugs do. But it's the immune pressure that's really driving uh, some of the viral mutations. Um, although I would just say that the, the main the main thing that's driving the viral mutations is the uh, virus's attempt to adapt from its natural host, the bat receptor, to the human receptor. So it, it entered the human population as a virus that was perfectly suited to the bat receptor, but the human receptor is not exactly alike. So the, most of the mutations we're seeing are mutations that allow the spike protein on the surface of the virus to fit more snugly inside the, the human uh, receptor, the ACE2 receptor. And that's having huge consequences. Uh, for one thing, it's allowing the virus to be more infectious. So maybe you need a lower dose of the virus in order to have establish an infection because the spike protein fits better in the human receptor. It's also allowing the virus then to potentially reproduce itself more quickly because it's binding more quickly. 
uh, leading to higher viral levels uh, quicker, which could translate, and I think we're seeing, into a more lethal virus. And then finally, uh, these adaptations are also probably driving greater rates of infection and illness in children. Uh, one, one thought is that children are relatively protected from COVID-19 because they have a lower density of ACE2 receptors. So it's harder for the virus to establish infection and maybe slower for it to drive up to the levels that cause illness. But with these adaptations, uh, the privilege of use of, of maybe having some protection because of lower density receptors, that, that tends to disappear. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, in India and Brazil is, is first of all, people who are vaccinated are getting sick. Uh, uh, people who have been sick previously are getting reinfected and now getting sicker. Uh, and we're seeing more younger people in the ICU. Uh, so those are all uh, mutations, not really in response to the antiviral drugs, uh, but in response to immune pressure. And this is happening to people who've received, let's say, two cycles of the vaccination? Uh, apparently, there was a hospital in India where a quarter of the doctors who had been vaccinated, something like uh, 40 out of 160, who were fully vaccinated, came down and got ill. Now, I don't believe there was severe and critical illness in the population. So for now, uh, the vaccines do appear to prevent uh, people from becoming severe or critically ill, defined as severe in the hospital on oxygen, critically ill, intubated, um, dangerously sick. So for now, the vaccines are holding up. Uh, but what is worrisome is, of course, that uh, the protection, which was so great, 95, 99% against the wild type or original strains of virus has been eroded by these mutations. So if the, if the vaccines, if a vaccinated person had levels of protection that were a hundred times greater than what was needed to protect against the virus. And by the way, the vaccines provide more protection than infection itself does which is a little miracle of Western medicine. I never thought that would be true, but it is true. But if that protection was about a hundred times greater than what you would need to protect against infection with the original strains of virus, what we're seeing with these mutant strains is that margin has been cut down to maybe 10 times. So we still have enough protection from the vaccine, not necessarily to prevent infection, or even illness, but to keep people from ending up in the ICU. What is unknown in this ongoing horror of experiment is what other mutations will could arise that would further erode the protection of the vaccine such that vaccinated folks are as susceptible as people who've never been sick or people who were sick with mild illness because uh, apparently a lot of folks in Brazil had the original COVID-19 illness. And now that this new strain, the, the P2 virus is circulating, people are getting sick again and apparently getting sicker the second time. So lots to be concerned about, lots of uncertainty about the future of the pandemic. Um, all the more reason why it's, it's unconscionable to me that the FDA is not issuing this EUA because 
we need at least one drug in our arsenal to offer patients who are critically ill. COVID-19 is getting better in places that are vaccinating, um, but the future for all of us is uncertain and we need a drug that works in people who are really sick. You're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Laurent Lamab is working, as you mentioned earlier, works targeting the CCR5 receptor, which is found on the T cell. And or in the T lymphocytes, but I guess T cell is fine, right? Immune cells, yeah. Yes. So we came to know, I think the general public who's over the age of 45 came to hear about T cells during the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. Now, could you explain a bit why it seems to the layperson that curing disease seems to be, instead of being easier because of our technology, harder, even though what I would maintain is that with more knowledge becomes more difficult the challenge of addressing disease because of the various ways such as T cells were brought onto the table during the height of the AIDS crisis because the addressing of those receptors was the way to find an end through what eventually became Crixivan, et cetera. So could you speak a bit Uh about why I don't want to call it T-cell technology, but the science around T-cells is so heightened today, even around a disease like COVID-19. Well, I would say that it's it's a fundamental flaw or, or trait of human beings that we have trouble putting our blessings into context <laughs> and being grateful, you know, as the Buddhists say, for the toothache you don't have. You know, you go back in human history, a hundred years and you talk to them about how well medical science is doing. Um, you know, smallpox, we don't even talk about smallpox. It's been eradicated. I believe smallpox has killed more people in the history of the world than any other infection. Uh, flu, uh, flu is I believe number two, right up there with tuberculosis and malaria. Uh, but these are not things that we talk about generally, certainly in, the, uh, in, in Europe or, or the US very much. Um, so I think it's hard to put into context the benefits uh, that Western medicine has achieved, including with vaccines and measles and mumps, um, rubella, polio, uh, is, is just extraordinary. And as I said before, even this COVID vaccine that we have is, is a minor miracle that, that the technology was in place uh, to look at RNA vaccines. They were going to go after a virus called RSV which is a cold virus that uh, people get when they think they have flu, but they don't, but is a virus that's very dangerous for young children. And then we're getting ready to launch those RSV vaccines using the RNA technology, which had been developed over decades. And then boom, COVID hits, and they just change the sequence of the RNA. And this 95% protection, at least against wild type, is astonishing. And as I said before, it is completely astonishing that the vaccine does a better job of protecting people against reinfection or infection than prior infection does. We have actually improved upon mother nature 
not we, not I, but the folks who did the vaccine. And, and that's just extraordinary. So I would say that, that it's an illusion that things with all this technology, that things are getting harder. I think we're probably taking a lot of things for granted. Um, that said, I think that, uh, and, and HIV of course is a huge success story. It did not happen quickly enough. And you know, I was in San Francisco, I was involved in the development of most of those HIV drugs. And there, it, was, it was horrific how many lovely, uh, uh, beautiful people had, had suffered so, so, so much agony. But there again, it's a, it's a miracle of, of, of modern medicine that, that we can treat viruses at all. We have to remember that viruses are, are really just bits of genetic information with a protein coat. Um, they're not bacteria. Bacteria are, are organisms that are alive, that they move around, they have sex, they eat, they have cell walls that we can penetrate. And so they're, they're, they're much more complex organisms. And with our antibiotics, there are various ways that we can go after them. But viruses are really just bits of information. And so I think it's not, it, the, the, the proper context is not, why can't we treat this better? But it's a miracle we can treat it at all. Um, and then, you know, the, the T cells, uh, we are, lorolumab is, is, I believe, ushering in a new era. Uh, we're now, uh, we are manipulating the trafficking of T cells and starting to control the T cells, where they go and what they do. Um, so we're not there yet. Uh, and certainly we're, there's also uh, interest in looking at lorolumab in the treatment of cancer because the, these T cells are fundamental to the microenvironment of tumors. Uh, and, and there's a thought that we could uh, manipulate those the, the, the trafficking of those cells into the microenvironment to also influence the outcome of cancer treatment. But for now, it's enough for me that I, I know that, that I've seen so many critically ill patients now with COVID-19 treated with this drug, lorolumab, that have done well. There's no doubt in my mind the drug works. I think the real question would be, why doesn't it work in everybody? And, and hopefully that's a question that we'll be addressing soon. Uh, but in the meantime, we still need to cross the finish line and, and prove to everyone's satisfaction, including the FDA, that the drug works in a, in a well-designed phase three uh, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study just in critically ill COVID-19 patients. I do think the drug also works in patients who are less severely ill, and that study also needs to be done using four doses, first dose IV, stratified for age and a larger study, you know, that like, like big pharma would do in order to show those benefits. But first the critically ill patients. Uh, and then I come back to the question of what are we gonna do in the interim? Uh, and in the interim, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people dying. Well, you have a, a team of people that you're working with to try and get this pushed forward with the FDA, yeah. including one of your colleagues named Harishitha Mraju, who is a specialist in pulmonary disease. Has he had access to this drug and applying it and seeing its results directly? Yes, I'd hope to have Harish on the call because he's a professor of medicine at Mount Sinai in New York and uh, pulmonary critical care. And has extensive experience with the drug in the ICU. But I should clarify that Harish and I are 
uh, physicians, we are clinical investigators, we are, we are completely independent of the company. Right, I, right. I, I'm an investigator for Cytodyne on their HIV studies, also their cancer studies, but I'm, I'm not a consultant, I'm not, a, I'm not paid by Cytodyne, I, we don't own any stock in Cytodyne, I have no equity stake in them. So I'm really not in a position to force uh, or advance the uh, request for an emergency use approval with the company. We are acting on our own as physicians who are tired of seeing people die. And uh, that is 100% our motivation. And, but we're also limited in that way. We are basically, you know, with HIV, I, I was spoiled, I guess, because I was surrounded by AIDS activists in San Francisco. So anytime I saw something that should have been done, they saw it usually before I did, and they were already on it, pressing the FDA and the government and, and, and making a stink. But with COVID, there are no COVID activists. Um, if there were, I would probably be talking to you right now because they would. Uh, so what Harris and I and a, and a group of others are doing are trying to fill that void of, of COVID activism. Uh, not necessarily in my wheelhouse, but uh, I, know, I know what's right and wrong, and I know this drug works. I know it has to be proven further, but I know that in the interim, the FDA should, uh, should act, and I'm committed to not let go. And there's a backstory here, though, isn't there? I mean, your main focus is getting the FDA to grant the EUA for Laurent Lamad, but the story behind why they have thus far refused is still complicated. It involves some what they feel to be legitimate criticism of the company that developed it. Could yes. you talk about that? Because once I read the backstory, it doesn't seem that serious. Could you explain a bit about this company? Yeah, the, that's a, a bit of a tender topic, but okay. I would say there are multiple threads there. We've talked about the one thread that this is a new mechanism of action uh, that we're proposing and the FDA has had a blind spot around it. Um, so that's certainly true. Um, there is a, a, a personal history between the FDA and Cytodyne which, uh, which has not been a, a productive relationship. That, that, uh, that relationship was forged over many years before COVID while the company was uh, developing the drug for HIV. Um, the, the, you know, in my view, it started with uh, when uh, Loranlab first entered the clinic for HIV therapy uh, and Cytodyne requested to move forward. And normally with HIV drugs, what we have done and what I've done at Quest in San Francisco you know, with 30 or 40 different studies is you have an HIV drug candidate, you give it to people with HIV who are, uh, have positive viral loads. So they're either not on treatment or they're treatment naive or they've stopped their treatment, but they have a stable viral load. You give them the dose of the drug on day one or a week of the drug, and then you measure their change in viral load over seven or 10 days. And that's how you demonstrate a drug is working. It really is one of the great gifts of, of doing HIV research is we have a nice hard endpoint viral load that we can quickly tell whether a drug is working or not. Um, and, and, and that way you can also tell, you know, if you need to increase the dose 
or if you increase the dose and you don't see further declines in viral load, you know you've reached your plateau. And, and that's how you pick doses of drugs for larger phase two and three studies. Unfortunately, in the development of lenalumab, everything was asked backwards. Uh, what the FDA allowed cytonine to do was to give lenalumab to patients who were already on antivirals and then withdraw those antivirals to see who would rebound. So it's a much more indirect and complicated way of trying to assess efficacy or to determine a dose. And, and so cyanide stumbled along for years, enrolled hundreds of patients, spent untold millions of dollars looking for their dose uh, and to try and define uh, the right regimen for HIV. And in the course of those years and in course of those meetings, I think they developed an unproductive relationship with cytonine. I also think that, that uh, and I was in those FDA meetings in Bethesda with the company and with uh, the, the antiviral folks at FDA themselves. And then I, I think that the way that cytonine does business, it just seems completely foreign to the FDA. They again are a 22 person company. They were a penny stock. They, they, they're, they're getting by on financial fumes. They've also been subject to an incredibly well-orchestrated and vicious attack by short sellers on Wall Street. Because they're not listed on a regular stock exchange, they're over the counter. They have uh, mostly individual investors who are prone to the, you know, the, the winds of change and, and, and hit stories. And, and those, those short sellers have been out to get cytodyne um, and, and specifically Nodder, and in one case, me. Uh, and it, so it made it very difficult for Cytodyne to have a sustainable source of funding. That's different than all the companies that FDA deals with. They're used to dealing with large companies where, where you know, financing is not an issue. Um, and so when Cytodyne and, and Nodder send out press releases, sometimes two a day uh, with every new twist and turn, it, it, the FDA frowns on that and, and looks at that as, as absolutely out of bounds uh, as a way of running a company. So there, there are multiple threads. It's a, it's a new drug, it's a new mechanism. They don't understand, uh, you know, they are, the FDA that we're dealing with is the division of antiviral drug development. Well, this really isn't an antiviral. It's, and there is no division of pulmonary inflammation, which is, those are the folks who should be reviewing the drug. Um, there's, there's a personal history between the FDA and Cytonine, which is troublesome. The, the company itself is shrouded uh, with, um, with, with, with attacks uh, by short sellers. Uh, FDA doesn't like these, the press release way of running the company. Um, so it has been a, 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 a difficult relationship to try and stand in between these, these players. Uh, knowing that we have a drug that could work for COVID-19 uh, has been a impossibly difficult year for everyone. I've had the added blessing of knowing the drug works uh, and seeing this dysfunctional relationship go nowhere. Well, why um, have you had to go to such lengths just to get attention? I mean, wouldn't there be an appeals process within the FDA, especially given the emergency? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I have spent most of the last year contacting media folks and politicians. 
Um, and what I have found in, in general is politicians don't want to go outside their lane. So I've spoken to uh, senators, congressmen, uh, they, they generally, they defer to the FDA. In, in one case, there was one individual, uh, uh, the health commissioner from New York, Howard Zucker, uh, was the only one sort of in political office who took us seriously. And when he called uh, the FDA to find it back in May of 2020, so Howard called me on my birthday and, and, I, and I, I said, Howard, no one's listening to us. He said, I'm listening to you. So I sent him the data that we had, including a paper by Bruce Patterson that outlined the, the rapid changes we saw with lorolimab in ICU patients that Harris was taking care of, showing very rapid declines in IL-6, uh, increases in CD8 counts, normalization of the CD4, CD8 ratio, and even decreases in viral load. So I sent that to Howard and he says to me, why, why is this drug approved for a compassionate use in New York? I said, Howard, I have no idea. So he called the FDA uh, and really the only politician until recently to get involved, but he was told to mind his own business. So in general, politicians have been told or instinctively known that they have to stay in their lane and their lane does not include the drug approval process. As for the media, I have no idea why, why they are unable to get their minds around this. I understand that there are some barriers that you know, they're not normally involved in the drug approval process, that the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bubble of slime around cytodyne and lawsuits and such that makes it seem like they're not a serious company. Um, I'm not a major NIH uh, influencing individual. Uh, it's a new mechanism of action. I get why the media would, would, would back away from this. Although I think that since, since the release of the 82% decrease mortality at day 14, it has become irresponsible for the media not to pay attention to this. Prior to that, as frustrating as it was, I understand that nobody really seemed to pay attention or care. There were other drugs being promoted by major big pharma interests. Why would anybody care about little cytodyne? But those drugs have all failed. And cytodyne's data is, is strikingly positive. And yet still nobody in the media seems to pay attention. It's super frustrating. Well, I can understand the politicians not wanting to get involved in terms of strong arming someone, but wouldn't be that part of their job description asking how can this doctor have an appeals process? Can you avail an appeals process? I mean, I, I don't expect politicians to go and topple someone's house, but certainly mm -hmm. there's a problem within a a health emergency, a public health emergency yeah. of a medicine that many physicians have noticed is prolonging life of people who are otherwise dying. So yeah. what, what is the biggest conflict of interest? Is it the short stocks, uh, the, the selling of short stocks? Is it that the company's small? Is big tech and big pharma having such a hand in this that they're first at the table? Yeah. Uh, that last bit, I, I think, is right. I don't know that there's a conspiracy by Big Pharma, but I right. do think Big Pharma has sucked all the oxygen out of the room. I mean, it was difficult for Cytodyne to get their 
phase three study done because all the investigators and hospitals were busy doing other studies by big pharma. They were getting paid to do studies by big pharma and really didn't have time to help Cytodyne with their program. Um, but I think it's, I, I don't have a, a single answer to that. I think, it, you know, what you just said about big pharma sucking the air out of the room is certainly true. Um, the short sellers have just created this idea that Cytodyne uh, is, is, is not to maybe be trusted. Um, I think Cytodyne is small. They, they're not, they were not really the right people to develop this drug in this emergency. Um, and, but the media fog has been bewildering. I also think we live in a world that is currently fractured, unlike any time I've ever known. And there are more people with more crazy ideas holding more megaphones, screaming for attention than anybody can bother with anymore. And so I think it's been very easy for folks in the media. You know, I've, I've reached out to Rachel Maddow eight times. It's very easy for folks in the media to sort of discount someone who's, who's saying, pay attention to me, I have something important to say, because there's so many people saying that right now. Well, I'm thinking too, also the fact that unlike Big Pharma, this company being smaller doesn't pay the FDA to test their products. So might this also be a factor where Big Pharma has the money and I'll you know, hit your second question to this. Why is it that companies would have to pay the FDA to test if the companies are not using FDA facilities necessarily? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. I don't like to necessarily go there because I don't understand all that. But since 1992, there was a, uh, implemented this, the, the user fees for pharmaceutical companies to, to help defray the costs of FDA's review and, and perhaps approval of their drugs. And, and that might've started out like a good idea, but within very short time, pharmaceutical companies were paying FDA hundreds of millions of dollars and I believe that last year, the number was almost up to $3 billion. So that's, that's B, billion dollars that companies are paying FDA to review and decide whether to approve their drugs. Well, that is nothing if not a pay to play, you know, mafia type arrangement. And it is certainly true that Cytodyne is not uh, paying user fees on that scale, or maybe any scale. I have no idea. I don't believe that's an issue. Uh, certainly the folks that I know at FDA are, you know, I've thought of them as smart individuals with integrity. I don't believe that they, that financial considerations would come to play here. I think political ones did. I think when, when Donald Trump was, and, and Fox News was screaming about hydroxychloroquine, there was enormous pressure on the antiviral group at FDA to uh, issue an EUA for hydroxychloroquine. And as they now know, that was a mistake. Uh, but I don't think finances enter it at all as tempting as that is to think. I, I do think that lobbying is an issue, that the, the larger companies uh, employ lobbying groups to, to get uh, their drugs uh, you, you know, into, the, into the conversation. And I think Cytodyne had a terrible time with lobbying experience. 
uh, the lobbyists that they tried to employ ended up, you know, extortion is a, is a strong word, but let's just say that Sinai paid a lot of money to people who delivered nothing um, and other people who refused to uh, help them unless money was paid up front, uh, which, uh, so in, that, in the end, I think that that experience, uh, you, you know, not under the CEO, let me just say that, that I, I find him to be a man of great integrity. Um, and he's, he tells the truth. I don't think he, uh, as a man of integrity, he tells the truth. Uh, but does he have experience in drug development? Uh, does he have a medical background? Does he know how to navigate these complicated waters? Not really. Um, but, you know, I, I, for me, it's a, I, I have found it to be a great relief to be dealing with a man of integrity because that's not always the case when you deal with pharmaceutical companies. But this has been a very complicated uh, pathway to know how to get Lamab into the attention of uh, regulatory authorities, the media, um, and and so far, you know, it's it's a flop. I don't, I don't know what brought you to Lamab. How did you get through the fog? I've been covering the COVID crisis mitigation efforts. Some of the uh -huh. science, not science, that's been happening, especially in the early months. And of course, I'm interested in the voices of people who have had problems getting their voices out. Because as we know, major media either wants to divide people, polarize the argument. So you could go on to, you might even have gone on Rachel Maddow and she made you out to be a a COVID denier, that's how bad things are. So I wanted to give nuanced space to what's happening here because as someone who, I'm coming from the social sciences, but I did social science research in the era of AIDS. And it was fascinating to see how even in a scientific, purely somatic way, the knowledge of AIDS went so quickly. Yes, it was too slow to save so many of our loved ones. But if you think about from 1981 to 1996, that was a lot of leaping, you know, that went on scientifically speaking. And there were many people involved, including gay rights activists saying, test this drug, test this drug. I remember it happened around AZT. Yeah. Yep. So there was a lot of in the underground pharmacies that happened in cities like New York and yep. San Francisco. So you had a lot of underground activity, overground smarts, and people just banging on with it. I'm a bit worried when I see a drug from a small pharmaceutical company that is not being approved despite good evidence that this would save lives. So yes. what's your next step after this? Because... It, it seems that short of them being able to respect some kind of review process, what else can you do? Well, let me just say again that I wanna congratulate you for making it through the media fog, because certainly we've reached out to, you know, hundreds of outlets and, uh, you know, you're one of the few that have responded. Um, and I think that you're right, a small company. And again, the absence of COVID activists so if there are any COVID activists out there, please contact us. Um, uh, we, we are on our own and we need help. Um, you know, I wrestled with uh, being torn between wanting to let go and, and not. My own mother passed away from COVID recently. We tried to get her 
around the map through the, the drug at the hospital that expired. So we got our EIND drug and then a plane that was delivering it got grounded during a cold snap. Um, so I'm dedicating my, the, mem my, the memory of my mother toward uh, uh, trying to make sure no one else's mother uh, suffers the same fate. But it's also very frustrating and hard to know how to move forward here. I do have some, a couple of live contacts with some um, politicians in the US. Uh, we are reaching out wherever we can, uh, but it is, some, it is a tough nut to crack. Uh, and it's possible that we won't be able to crack it and that nothing will happen until a repeat phase three study is done and Cytodyne is able to show data to everyone's satisfaction that everybody can understand, but that's likely going to be around Thanksgiving. Yes, and they just announced uh, that they are planning now to have, I believe it was Pfizer announced they plan to have the next level of response to the new mutations of the COVID-19 virus. So yes, it's not fast enough. Uh, and I'm very sorry to hear about the loss of your mother. This cannot have been an easy time. What else can people do? Because what's really shocking to me, as you well know, from the Great Barrington Declaration and the three people who created this, they had an enormous amount of blowback. And yeah. it's really shocking to me that at the first table, both in the US or the UK or whatever country, that the discussion was seemed to have been set up by the nature of who was chosen to make decisions mm -hmm. should not have reactions to COVID-19 been far more heterogeneous, having people from various points of view. Yeah, well, I would certainly agree that it has been a, a disaster of leadership, um, not just uh, our former president, but that the, uh, the here in the U.S., the the CDC, the, the FDA's decisions have been difficult to understand. And they, they've been busy approving drugs that don't work and, and completely ignoring uh, one that does. Um, but I think we press on. We, you know, I, uh, Harish, Dr. Sitham Raju and I just did a video uh, rendition of the op-ed that was uh, published. Uh, and we're gonna send that out on social media. Uh, I'm continuing to interact with anyone who's in a position to help us move the needle. Uh, and we're, it's difficult to come up with a call to action for people. I mean, the best we've come up with is contact your local representatives and ask them to find out from the FDA what the status of an EUA for lorolumab is. We're only asking for the EUA for critically ill patients for whom really there's nothing else. Um, but, uh, and, and yeah, if there are any COVID activists out there, please, uh, I can be reached at uh, questclinical.com. Well, I'll link to your, your name to an email as well so that people can reach out. But it is, it is uh, interesting to me seeing that the mitigation efforts have been so badly handled in most every single Western country. Yes. And that this seems to be another chink on the, chainmail, as you will, <laughs> the uh, very ongoing problems of how information goes up and down the pipeline. I mean, you yeah. are a scientist, a doctor who knows about 
what you are dealing with every day. How on earth is it that the FDA is making it difficult for his physicians? You would have thought that during this crisis, the first thing they would have put in order would have been a database for physicians to not only enter all the COVID data directly, but also to have an email to clarify certain yeah. issues and about these kinds of drugs. Uh, yeah. it's, it's disheartening to say the least. Yes, you're 100% right. And if I had had a choice, I would have had one of the ICU docs with a lot of experience with lorolimab treating critically ill patients on with us today, because they're the ones who are, have the experience and they know. Uh, they, they know the drug works and they are desperately hoping somebody pays attention. You know, maybe there won't be another wave here in the U.S. Maybe there will. I don't know. But they know the drug works. They've seen it work. Um, and they're deeply frustrated at, at, at the logjam and the paperwork. And in fact, the FDA has made it quite difficult to access the drug, even through an emergency IND at this point. Um, so they're watching people die who they believe they'd be able to save. It's horrific. Where can we find the study, the double-blind study of lorenolumab that Cytodyne did? Yeah, it's a little company. They, they have only issued the, the top-line data through a press release. We're working on the manuscript now, but it'll be a couple months before it sees the light of day. Excellent. If this were Gilead, it would have been published, but it's not. Yeah, well, this is, again, another failure of mitigation efforts where the FDA could have actually subventioned smaller companies to get this yeah. information out. Actually, the failure there is with the NIH. Uh, the NIH, uh, and it is inconceivable to me at this point, how there's only one drug that has shown a hypothesis-generating effect of treatment in critically ill patients, and yet the NIH continues to completely ignore the wrong amount. I, I have zero insight into why that's happening. Well, I join you in that because I'm actually uh, horrified every day <laughs> for the last 15, 16 months about the virtual lockdowns we've experienced uh, all over yeah. the planet. And it would, it would seem to me that among the suggestions by the Great Barrington Declaration, targeted protection. What country on the planet rolled out plans to help the elderly. I can tell you how many, none. I've been investigating this for months and it's a, a thorn in my side at this point because what they did is the opposite of using people as human shields in a SWAT situation. Our governments have, have used the elderly as a human shield to get away with doing nothing. It was all fine at the beginning. Everyone was in hysterics. I was too, because you know we were sold that this was the new black plague. Uh, this was the plague. We were going to all die. And I was like freaking out. I was. And I'm a reader. I'm a science-minded person. So I could not understand how on earth something that was ramped up immediately within three weeks, we knew this was not the plague. And then mitigation efforts didn't respond on that same level. We kept hearing about, you don't want to kill grandpa. And that just seems to have been a rinse and repeat instead of all of that scaremongering that was instituted by private pharmaceutical companies, public health bodies, various governments could have been put into creating virtual online systems for carers, 
for the elderly, for families caring for the elderly, and obviously healthcare professionals yeah. and public health sector individuals who are working either with, let's say, social services or with certain at-risk groups or in a more official capacity, think tanks, academia. This did not happen. I mean, it's like, I'm not even a politician, but this pandemic made me think about wanting to become one because uh, things have been done so shoddily. And I've had Jay Bhattacharya on the show. I've had Martin Kulldorff on the show and they talked to me about the Great Barrington Declaration. And it astounds me, just like your struggle to have this drug approved by the FDA of the EUA variety that would allow right. something else to happen. So why has the EUA issuance not happened? And why has the Great Barrington Declaration been so ignored? Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I, I would certainly say that the, the capitalism, uh, the machine of capitalism did respond. Uh, it, it, it generated a, a quite a number of therapies uh, huge returns of investment were realized, but but those therapies have added very little uh, to our ability to, to stem uh, the, the death of this pandemic. Um, and you're right, uh, uh, the, the why a, a, a drug with this safety record is being ignored for a sort of essentially compassionate use in the most desperately ill patients is a mystery. Mm-hmm.